Zechariah chapter 10 tonight. Take your Bibles and turn there if you would. Zechariah chapter 10. The Bible says, Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to every one grass in the field. For the idols have spoken vanity, and the diviners have seen a lie and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, they went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. And it's talking about the nation of Israel or Judah, and that because these um, false prophets and these false gods delivered lies, that it caused the nation to err. Verse 3, so God's response. Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the goats. And these, the idea is the leaders here. It's the same idea, the leaders of the, of the nation. For the Lord of hosts had visited his flock, the house of Judah, and hath made them as his goodly horse in the battle. Out of him came forth the corner, out of him the nail, out of him the battle bow, out of him every oppressor together. And they shall be as a mighty men, which tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. And they shall fight, because the Lord is with them. And the riders on horses shall be confounded. And I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. And this is a reference to the lost tribes of, of the north, or Samaria, which I'll talk about in a moment. And I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy upon them. And they shall be as though I had not cast them off. For I am the Lord their God, and will hear them. And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as though wine, as through wine. Yea, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. And this is really an echo of the last verses of chapter 9. And I will hiss for them, or whistle is the idea, and gather them, for I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased. And I will sow them among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall live with their children and turn again. And I will bring them again out of the land of Egypt, and gather them out of Assyria, and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon, and the place shall not be found for them. They shall pass through the sea with affliction, and shall smite the waves in the sea, and all the deep of the river shall dry up, and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and to the scepter of Egypt shall depart away." And I will strengthen them in the Lord, and they shall walk up and down in, in His name, saith the Lord. Our Holy Father, I pray in the next few moments as we look into Your Word once again, that Lord, You might help us to understand what You were saying to these people so many years ago. And then Lord, I pray You'd help us make application of the same truths and principles for our life. And I ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for standing. All right, let me just give a brief correction since Daniel gave this to me. For those who were listening to the uh, announcement, Vacation Bible School actually starts this coming Monday, not a week from Monday. All right, we're all good with that? Okay, thank you, Daniel, for putting that on the desk there. All right. In Zechariah chapter 9, God was encouraging the Jews of Zechariah's day who were scattered among many nations and beginning to come home, he was encouraging these people to fully trust in the Lord. And chapter 9 was uh, Zechariah pleading with the people to not depend on false gods, not to look to other resources, but to fully and truly depend on the Lord. And this was so that they could avoid the temptations of being self-sufficient. Um, for 
many, many years, really centuries prior to Israel's overthrow by the Assyrians and then Judah's overthrow by the Babylonians, the people had begun to marginalize God. They went through vain religion, they went to the temple, but they really didn't depend on God. They, they really didn't seek God. They, 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 they were looking for resources um, of their own and they were relying on really everything but the Lord Himself. Rather than trusting in God and living obediently um, and fulfilling the covenant by loving God and loving people, they were living in a way that did not show any dependence on the Lord. And God was saying, if you'll fully commit to me, well, then um, I will defeat your enemies. And this is all chapter 9. And I will call, cause those who come back in exile, I'll cause you to prosper and your crops to grow. And I'll provide you an environment whereby you can celebrate and rejoice and your children will grow up in safety as well as your your older people, and you will have provision and all your needs met. Well, chapter 10 continues with that basic theme. Look to the Lord, depend on Him, don't look to your own resources in an inappropriate way. And so, we're going to jump ahead. In verse number 6, God promises to strengthen Judah, and then He promises to regather Joseph, and then the next verse, I believe, to, to strengthen Ephraim. So, what's happening in this verse is God's saying, okay, if you'll, if you'll come back home, remember they're in exile, and, and not just in Babylon, but these people are scattered to the north regions of where Assyria was, uh, in what had become the region of Samaria. God's saying, if, if, if you will come back and you will trust in me, then I will strengthen you. I will take care of you. I, I, will, I will give you those things that you need. You know, I, just, just come home and depend on me and I will regather you. And so, here's just kind of promise that God's intentions was to restore Judah, but not just that, but also to bring back in some fashion the ten tribes that were lost. Remember when Israel fell to the north about a hundred years before Judah did to the south, those people weren't really taken to any one place, but they were just scattered, some to Assyria, some into Egypt, uh, some in the regions of Lebanon. They, they just were scattered, and, and they were called the ten lost tribes of Israel. And, and, and I suppose in terms of human calculations, they, they were lost, but they were still Jews and they, they knew who they were. And so, God's saying, you know, a day is coming when I'm going to bring Judah back from Babylon, but my intention is, is to bring all the scattered tribes back to this place to worship me. So, in verse 6 says, if you'll depend on me, I'll bring you home. I'll create the environments where all of you can come home. In verse 6, I'll strengthen you. I will begin to save you. I'll have mercy on you. He says, it'll just be like you never left. God's saying, you, know, you went into judgment and you were in exile, but I, I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to so bless and prosper the nation. This could be like that you, you are never gone. Verse 7, I'm going to make you like a mighty man. Um, I'll give you reasons to rejoice if you depend on me. Uh, verse 8, I will increase you in great number. You will, you will prosper and grow as a people and a nation. Verse 9, God says, I will sow among you. In other words, I'm going to be in your midst and I'm going to plant seeds of goodness and I'm going to make sure the crops come and, and I'm going to bless you. And so he says, I'm going to sow in you and in your hearts to create a good work. In verse 10, there's this reference of, uh, you know, bringing the children back from Israel out of Egypt. God goes back to antiquity and to a, a story they all knew that there was a time when the nation of Israel was enslaved by the nation of Egypt. And they cried out, and God through Moses and the plagues delivered them. 
And so God's saying, there was a time where I brought all the people to this place, and just like in Exodus, I'll bring another great deliverance, and I will bring you all back from Egypt, and not just Egypt, but Assyria and Babylon. So He's saying, I've displayed my power once in bringing people home. I, I can, and if you trust in me, I will do it again. And so, verse 11 talks about that He'll, just as they went to the sea, He'll take them to the sea again. They can overcome rivers um, and all the powers of the nations who might oppose them, mentioning Assyria, Egypt, and others, that He's greater than all these forces. What needed to happen was they needed to come home and they needed to fully trust in the Lord. So, the text presents to those Jews who have returned and are back and in the process of rebuilding the temple that God Himself is with them, just a reminder that He is, and that they need to continue. And this last, I think in verse 12, 11 here, He's basically saying, if you will come back home and, and, and you will be engaged in what I ask you to do and you're obedient, then you'll be able to walk up and down in my name. And the idea is you'll be able to hold your head up in safety. You'll have national pride again. And, and this is where you want to be and this is where I want to take you. And so, this is all an encouragement, once again, for the people who are scattered. Because currently there's about 50,000 of them in Jerusalem, but there were uh, possibly millions more scattered throughout the world that God was uh, appealing to to come home and to take care of them. And so, His instruction here is to make sure the people, when they did come home, and, and currently, that they didn't give themselves to the kind of life that put them in the position of being carried away in exile in the first place. Does that make sense? You know, it's kind of like when you, you discipline a child and you say, now, you know, this disappointed me that you did this. And uh, so here's what I want. I, you know, I always say to my kids, Daddy needs you to obey now, right? You said something like that maybe to your kids. You know, in other words, don't go back and do what I just spanked you for. Does that make sense? As they get older as a teen, you, you talk to them and you reason with them and you, you have a discussion and like, hey, let's avoid this behavior. Making these choices and engaging in this behavior, well, it's just going to put you right back where you were again. Well, there's just a lesson here that as human beings, we're really bad to going right back where we were. I mean, forgive me, but you know, the Bible says like a, a dog that returns to its vomit. That's the nature of humanity. We just kind of repeat and recycle and rehash so many of the poor choices that we made over and over and over. And we always wonder why we can't get ahead, why we can't make progress, why I'm still plagued by the same you know, habits and sins or whatever else, because we just do the same things over and over. And so, um, God is saying, in effect, come back home, fully trust me, and don't give yourselves to those things which cause you to be scattered in the first place. And so, verses really 6 to 12 are basically saying, my intent is to bring you back and to do you good, and to bless you and prosper you. He says, but there's two things in this text anyway, there's more than two in the book of Zechariah, but in this chapter there's two things that you continually gave yourself to in the past and in history, previous to 70 years that I caused you to go away, that these have just been a problem for you. And they're not fully, completely rooted out of you right now. And you know, God may have been surveying these, these early returnees and looking at them, and, and He may have seen the temptation for them to go back to these particular two obstacles, these two sins. And so, He addresses them in verses 1 through 5 or so, 
And he basically said, don't do these things because I want to do these things for you. In verses 6 through 12, I want to bring you home. And so the two things that historically and evidently in terms of this letter were still a problem for Israel, at least in terms of temptation, were, number one, idolatry, which we have discussed over and over and over, and then failed leadership. Two things that have constantly been a plague to you that have caused you not to prosper and that have caused you to break the covenant with me and then necessitated discipline on my part. Your propensity and tendency to trust other things than me. And number two, you consistently put, put and allow people to be in leadership um, who don't have your best interest in mind. Okay? We may not be able to relate to the first one, but we can certainly relate to the second one. Um, because that's an issue for us today as well. These two issues were part of the reasons that God had disciplined them in the first place. Idolatry and poor leadership. Now we've studied there were other reasons as well. Um, they were disobedient. They were, they, they were backbiting as we've learned about. They, they did not take care of the vulnerable, the poor, the widows, um, people in the population who needed help. They had no heart for that anymore. They exploited people for their own gain. Um, we've rehearsed a lot of the reasons that God allowed them to go into exile. But in view in our text are these two, idolatry and failed leadership. So evidently, even now, but in Babylon 70 years, they're coming back. The initial 50,000 under Zerubbabel and Joshua. Others are returning. We've learned a few chapters ago, people were coming from the regions of Samaria, inquiring about coming back as well. Even now, Evidently, the people were being tempted to give themselves to idolatry again, and evidently poor leadership was once again asserting itself in a way that could hamper and lead astray the nation of Judah and these regathered people. Even now, after 70 years, as they're in the midst of rebuilding the temple, the people were evidently tempted to once again to look at resources outside themselves as their primary provision. So uh, let, me, let me go back and explain why this, what, what, what may seem weird to us, idolatry, why this so plagued them. And, and there's maybe a little bit of an insight here that will help us with this. In terms of ancient history, the children of Israel came out of Egypt. That's where they really grew as a nation from the lineage of Joseph. And so the people of Israel were, grew up, you know, as a nation grew up really in Egypt. And so they, you know, they, they learned there about the false gods, and, and they heard you know, about them. Um, but, but, but something physical that was a part of living in Egypt was they were used to the resource of the Nile River. Okay? So the Nile River, primary river that runs through Egypt. It was a constant and ongoing supply of water. Water wasn't really a great big thing in Egypt, at least from the major cities, because the Nile flowed through there. And so, you know, they planted their fields around the rivers, and their crops came up there. They, their, their, all their livestock was taken care of. Water was not a primary concern in Egypt. But when Moses came to be a deliverer at God's direction, God took them from along the banks of the Nile in Egypt, and He took them to the desert. Right? Okay. What's primarily not in the desert? Water. Right? 
Okay, so immediately there's a, there's a, a, a sub-lesson here that the first thing the children of Israel had to do, which they failed at repeatedly, was to trust God for their resources. You with me? They had to trust God for water. They had to trust God for food. And as he would say here in all the Old Testament, you have to trust me for rain. It was an afterthought in Egypt. The water was there. But now I'm taking you to a place where the water's not flowing in rivers. It's not obvious and evident. The rains don't come on any kind of regular pattern. So the first thing you, got, you all have to learn to do is pray to me, ask for the rain. And God says, if you'll do that, I'll give it. Now, there's this kind of tie to the covenant. The covenant of, uh, of God with Israel is basically this. Um, I will be your God and you'll be my people. I will love you. You're supposed to love me. Um, I'll provide for you. You have to obey me. So, so there's this covenant relationship. And to the degree that the people of Israel kept this covenant, one of the things that God promised them was water. And over and over, if you think about your Bible reading, you, you, there's this phrase, the, form, or the, the, the former and latter rains. In other words, the spring and the fall rains. It's all through the Old Testament. God will provide you the spring and the fall rains, the former and the latter rains. Um, it, and it's tied to their obedience. Even in the short history that these people had back in Jerusalem, and they've only been here now a few years, they had a couple of lean years in crops because the people started rebuilding the temple. And if you remember, they got off track. They went home to build their own homes. And in that particular year, God turned off the valves of the water. And they had a bad crop. And God said, you want the water to come back on? Get back to rebuilding the temple and get back to loving and obeying me. You with me? Okay. So there's this kind of tie to trusting God for the most basic thing in the world. And that was water. Well, when they got the, the promised land to Canaan, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, you know, it was better than the desert. But there's something the children of Israel observed there. And the Canaanites worshipped a number or a pantheon of gods, but chief among them was Baal. We all know that name, right? Baal. Now, Baal has many names, Beelzebub, or the flies, whatever else. But one of the primary functions that the Canaanites view of Baal was, is that Baal was the provider of rain. And Baal was the one who blessed the crops. And Baal was in charge of fertility. And so the children of Israel and Canaan and, their, and the Canaanites, it's a land full of milk and honey. Like, how'd this all get here? And they're serving this God, Baal. So, you know, maybe what we need to do is hedge our bets here. And I've said this a number of times. And let's just go ahead and sacrifice and worship Baal a little bit, synchronetic worship. We'll worship God, but we'll make sure we pay homage to Baal too, because we want to make sure that this continues to be a land of milk and honey, continues to get our rain. So what the people do is they begin to offer and burn incense to Baal in the hopes of securing water. You with me? So the idolatry was really tied to a basic necessity. It's just they were thinking, well, let's go worship something of wood. Let's go worship this statue. It was not like that. In their mind, they were in a land that was prospering, and the, the local residents said it was because of Baal. Are you guys with me? So there's this temptation economically to say, well, if that's how it happens, you know, we love you, God, but hey, if Baal can help us out, we're going to do this. 
Okay, so now let's fast forward. They've come back from um, Babylon. Resources are scant, and, 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 and life's hard. And they've already been through one time where the rain's not been good, and all of a sudden they're thinking, well, there's some days there where we, we talked to Baal and we had the rain. Now, it's also true we went to captivity because of it. But, you know, people are, like I said at the beginning, they're hard-headed and they repeat the same mistakes over and over. And so they're thinking, and I'm assuming they're thinking this, well, maybe we should look to Baal again. Maybe in a pinch he can help us out. You know, they're not completely 100% cured of their idolatry. This temptation was great because of the need of the moment in their minds. And God's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. So if you look at chapter 10, verse 1, what's the first thing that God says in the chapter for them to do? Ask me for what? Rain. So why is he saying that? Well, he's talking about idolatry in a moment. So evidently there was a temptation for them not to ask God and to seek help from Baal. And God's saying, okay, look here. I brought you back. I need you to fully trust in me. Like you did in the wilderness. You, it, it wasn't obvious that, I would, that you would be taken care of, but I sent the rain. I sent the quail. I brought water out of a rock. I took care of you. Well, we're, we're, it's like this again. The city's destroyed. There's no walls. The infrastructure's collapsed. The economy is horrible. I, I know there might be a temptation to practice the ways of the Canaanites to, to, to secure benefits again, but I don't want you to do that. I want you to pray to me, pray to me for rain. And if you obey me, if you love me, if you're good to people, if you follow my laws, then I promise you as part of my covenant, I will send you the spring and the fall rains. God's appealing to them to fully trust Him for this basic necessity of life. Uh, look in verse 2. Verse 1, he says, Ask the Lord rain in the times of latter rain. Verse 2, he said, For the idols have spoken vanity, and the diviners, these are the false prophets, have seen a lie, and they have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. In other words, he, he's saying, these people, you, you, you sought Baal once, you, you've gone to these false prophets, and they told you that we take care of you, but their advice led you to Babylon. Don't listen to them anymore. Ask me for rain. Look to me for the provisions of life. Look to me to take care of you. There's this lesson here that seek the Lord first and foremost in all things. Okay, I'm, now I'm working my way to an important thought. Worldly wisdom, pragmatism, and self-reliance might get you somewhere, but they can't take you where God will take you. They have hard limits. And yet, worldly wisdom, pragmatism, and self-reliance are still a real struggle for us today. But God, well, and these things may not be evil in among themselves, but if they provide themselves a substitute for praying to God and asking Him for rain, asking Him for wisdom, how to, how to, how to be a parent, how to, how to do life. If we start looking to the world, they look to idols. If we just look to the world, to um, the diviners of our day, well, we might be in trouble in time too, is the idea. And secondarily, in verse 3, 
and this was a past and possibly a, a, a recurrent problem, poor leadership was plaguing the people. Um, it, I don't know what leadership here is specifically referring to. It could be spiritual leadership. It could be political re leadership. My guess is it's probably both. And we know from the Old Testament, both political and spiritual leadership failed Israel completely. They were corrupt. Both sought after selfish gain. Both rejected God as a priority. Both sought status and power for themselves. They failed to be humble and take care of the people. And, and let me just read a couple uh, texts to you. Don't turn there because it'll take a time. In Jeremiah chapter 23, we, we see here God's idea about the leadership in this day. He says, Woe unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep in my pasture, say the Lord. Therefore, thus say the Lord of Israel, against the pastors that feed my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away, and I have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them that shall feed them. In other words, I'll give you new leadership, and you'll fear no more. And then in Ezekiel, Kind of a very famous chapter, verse 34, against the pastors as well. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus said the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do not feed them, that do not feed, but for themselves they should not, um, they should not, why should they not feed the flock? You eat the fat, you clothe you with the wool, you kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. And he goes on and on with all these indictments against the, the leadership of Israel who, who failed to take care of them. We, we sort of understand this, right? Um, poor leadership in any institution will probably hurt the institution. Is that fair? Will that be a church like this one? Uh, whether it be a business organization or whether it be our country or whatever it might be, when there's a leadership that does not have the interest of the people in mind, well, then that's a problem. And so that's what's in view here. Evidently, um, people are coming back and people are assuming the mantle of leadership or whatever else, and they're falling right back into these old things. Well, I'm going to get what I can get for me, and I'll export these people here, and we'll, we'll do these things that God does not necessarily be a part of. And God's saying, let's not go there again. Let's not allow this kind of leadership. So, verses 3 through 5, God speaks of his anger in our text, chapter 10, against the shepherds, and says, uh, basically, I'm going to get rid of these guys. And I'm going to come in and be your leader. And then I will do the good that I promised you in verses 6 through 12. And I'll give you a better set of leadership in time. Now, part of this, if I just stop there, the large view of Zechariah 10, in part, probably has in view the millennial kingdom, when in fact God will bring all the people back to this area, when idolatry will be done away with, and God Himself will be a leader. Uh, for the people. But there was some application for Zechariah's contemporary audience as well. And again, redundantly, it was a call to trust God and for the people to evaluate their leaders. And this was an encouragement for them to secure the greatest possible blessing by taking care of these perpetual problems of idolatry and poor leadership. Okay. So for us today, looking for application, today, you know, our temptations of trusting God might be a little different. Um, 
you know, I don't know that we really do pray as we ought to for the Lord to provide for us the things we need, like today, the rain. But we're, we're probably not asking a false God to provide it for us either. But we are, I think, seriously tempted to trust other resources other than God for what we might call life's successes and rewards. You with me? Okay. I think we are somewhat tempted as a people to trust things other than God for life's successes and rewards. Jesus spoke to this plainly when he said, You cannot serve God and mammon. Contemporarily, we're not much different than the people 2,000 years ago, that there was this struggle to, instead of looking to God for safety and security and provision, well, the people that day were looking to mammon and money for safety and security. And the problem with that is, is that if you believe that money is your security, well, you may even be tempted to violate God's laws and priorities and principles to get more of it if that's where you believe security comes from. This is why people steal, cheat, rob, whatever else. It's why people work more than they should. Some should work harder, but for some people, they work becomes a priority that usurps the time they need with their family, the time they need to be at church. You guys following me? It's a temptation for us. If that's where safety and security comes from, well, then we can be tempted to give too much of our devotion to the making of it, the securing of it, the protecting of it, rather than asking God, Lord, give me this day my daily needs. The Lord take care of us. He's going to meet of our needs when we seek first Him and His kingdom, as the Bible tells us. If we're not careful, we're going to find ourselves not chasing an idol, but chasing the dollar, working inordinately for it, trusting it, overvaluating it. And if we're not careful, giving it more time and attention than we do um, time and attention to God. You know, work is not an evil, obviously. In the economy of God, if we work hard, then work is to be rewarded. And that's how it works. But God warns us to make sure we understand that even when hard work is rewarded, that um, the reward is still coming, not just from the work of your hands, but also coming from God. I won't take time, because I'm going to take more time than I intended. But in Deuteronomy chapter 8, where God's establishing the covenant with Israel, He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be good to you, like He's saying in the last half of Zechariah 10. He says, your barn's going to be filled, and you're going to have cattle, and life's going to be good for you. But then He gives this really stark warning. He says, but beware. Don't mistake the hard work you're doing as the primary uh, source of the blessing. The primary source of the blessing comes from me. I'm the one who gave you health. I'm the one who gave you strength. I'm the one who gave you the ability to work. I'm the one who gives you the opportunity to work. I'm the one who creates the, the circumstances where work can be rewarded. And, and God repeatedly in Deuteronomy 9 says, you work hard, you'll be blessed, but you make sure that you never stop looking to me as the one who gave you the ability to give these riches. It didn't come from you. And so it's not that we're not supposed to work hard. 
It's, it's just we're supposed to understand that God is the, the provider of these things through the work that we do. And it's super important. And so, you know, connected here in terms of wisdom and guidance, um, again, money might be a problem for us, but we also live in the information age. <laughs> Lord help us. So much information. So much information that most of it's meaningless. We're just awash in too much. We live in an age of information, books, blogs, TikTok. Oh my word. You know, I'm not for or against it. It's a medium. But like, I've been told you can learn how to do everything in the world from TikTok. My point is, it's a source of information for people on how to, how to wash your clothes and uh, how to, I don't know, it's crazy. Anyway, maybe it's not as funny to you as me, but I, you know, whatever. It's a source of information that people look to. And sometimes they look to it way too much. Hour after hour after hour after hour. Now, it's not that books and blogs and TikTok are necessarily evil or unhelpful. But once again, in the information age, we have to be careful and cautious that all this information does not provide itself a substitute for the Word of God and His wisdom. That we're not tempted to buy into the world's truth and perspective more than God's truth and perspective. Well, what do you mean? Okay. Contemporarily, does the world have opinions and wisdom on how to raise children? Does it? Oh, yeah. It's pretty vocal about it. And not just vocal about how they want you to do it and how they don't want us to do it. Okay? And so if we're not careful, we can be tempted to listen to all that TikTok teaches us and all the books and blogs and contemporary speakers teach us. And we can be tempted to say, well, you know, I guess spanking's outdated. Okay, well, is it? Has human nature changed? Do we still have a sinful nature? Are people still born from the womb speaking lies? I mean, do we, to this day, do we not struggle with wanting to satisfy uh, our desires and, and um, indulgences? We still struggle as an adult. And we struggle in part because we were never put in check as kids. Okay, I, I'm not saying kids can't grow up minus spanking and, and not be weird. But I am saying this, for you to suddenly reach some enlightenment status where that's God's wisdom is now out of vogue is incredibly misguided. And so we could be tempted to say, well, we'll trust this source of information over the Word of God. You see the application here? This is our form of idolatry. Is we'll, we'll find a different way. Well, the whole world seems to be saying, I mean, this is hyperbole, that, you know, that today, I mean, honestly, I, I saw this in the news the other day. It was a doctor holding up a banner saying, abortion is health care. That was the banner. This was an educated person. Just because you, you, you change semantics doesn't mean something's okay. Um, but my point is, is educated, poli educated people believe that. And increasingly, when we're inundated with worldly wisdom, if we're not careful, your young people are going to grow up with the thought and a bent that you don't share. 
because this is what the world's saying, and it's healthcare, or it's a woman's right, or it's what he's, you know, I mean, never mind responsibility and free, um, I'm okay there, but you get the idea. It's easy to substitute these things, okay? Um, well, you know, I, I know the Bible speaks the idea of, of homosexuality and these things, but we live in a different age and yada, yada. And if we're not careful, we're going to listen to the worldly wisdom and thoughts here, and we're going to buy into a further degree than the Bible says we can, and suddenly we're going to be in the same kind of idolatrous position that these people were in. You, you follow my line of thinking here? Is that how to raise a child, views on these moral issues, how, how to have success, what it takes to be successful, how do you define success? The world tells us this. Well, it's about dollars and status and accomplishment. And, and then we, we go to the place of pragmatism. We'll do what works. And, 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 and then all of a sudden, pragmatism in the church replaces prayer. Well, come on, you guys, let's put together a good service and let's fix the platform and let's, you know, let's, let's, let's do all these things to attract a crowd. And I'm not against them, and I'm sure there's some things that can be helped to us. But what about this? How about you invite someone to church and get on your knees and pray about it? I'm not against doing those other things, but they're not a substitute for God and His spiritual power. And it's really easy for us, without even meaning to, to find ourselves way down the road of implementing business practices in the church, and they may or may not be a help, but what we really need to do in the church is be worshiping God and depending upon Him. Amen. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but if there is to be a priority, it's on God and His Word. So whether it's counseling, marriage, finances, life, or in the church, God in His wisdom has to come first. The Bible tells us wisdom comes from above. Truth is not subjective, it's objective. And principles have to be practiced in terms of priority, they come from the Word of God. The world's ways and God's ways do not necessarily always conflict, but if they do conflict, you need to bow to God's ways. Amen. Always. And that's what they were being tempted not to do. Well, let's just let's go over here and do some of this worldly wisdom of, of, of Baal. It seems to make sense. The problem is long term it doesn't. Yeah, I, for me, I thought about this as a church. There's nothing wrong, I don't think, for us to have media, advertising, being sharp, making sure our facilities are, 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 are in good rapport. But those are not substitutes from proclaiming the truth from God's Word, from praying, of worshiping the Lord and making Him the priority of our lives. You've all heard the sermon probably preached in fundamental circles. There is a right and a wrong way to carry the ark. Right? Those who know the story. And we can't just choose how we want to carry the ark. We just can't choose how we want to do church. And we just can't choose how we want to live this life. And I don't care what the books and the blogs and TikTok say. Our primary source of information is right here. There's not some things we can't learn. And there's not some principles we can't apply. They're just not substitutes and or a priority for this. Amen. Ever. I've got more, but I'm going to stop there. Because I have another point. So that's a major temptation for them, and it's a major temptation for us. Now, a little bit of a word of warning to the second point about the shepherds and leadership. 
You know, as I look at this idea of leadership failing and leading people astray, you know, I've again did some self-reflection. I feel a very keen and incredible sense of responsibility in the position that I have. I, I think that's probably evident and obvious. I hope it's evident and obvious. I don't do this lightly, and I try to be careful. Um, I fully understand I'm going to stand before God one day, give an account for the way I've led this church and where I take you. Um, I've tried my best to make sure that God's Word is a guide for all of us, even when it's not easy to, to preach some of the things that we find here. Um, I've tried to, the staff and I have tried to guard against compromise where we can see it. And we try to structure services that we hopefully will lead you to a greater understanding of God and to be closer to Him. And again, over the years, I feel like we've taken that responsibility and the deacons and leadership here have taken that very seriously in terms of decisions, philosophy, and the tough choices that are made, etc. But I also have felt that in another place, and I did as a teacher, I did as a coach, when I was a director for Heartland, I felt it there. But you know the other place I, I felt the responsibility of leadership most keenly? And that was as a dad. As a dad. Now, a dad's not a shepherd. I don't know what he is. But in the text, leadership failed the nation. And because leadership failed the nation, the nation failed. Now, is that not a description of modern America in our homes? Yeah. So, I'm saying this. I'm keenly aware of my responsibility behind this desk. And I want to put some, something on you. Are you keenly aware of your responsibility, just for a moment, you men, behind the desk that you occupy at home? And if you don't do your job, well, how can you possibly expect your family to grow up and do theirs? And today, America is partly lost because leadership in the home has failed, Amen. miserably failed. And that's a series of sermons. Homes need shepherds. They need leadership. They need fathers who understand with great sobriety the position and the privilege that God has placed upon them in being a dad and a father. This is so simple. But dads, you are responsible for your homes. And not just to put food on the table, but for them physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And delegating some responsibility for your child's spiritual well-being to the church is fine, but you can't abdicate it all there. And you've got to be thoughtful of the kind of dad you are in the home, you have to be aware that little eyes are always watching you. They're taking cues from you. They're watching your morality. They're watching your ethics. And they are certainly discerning your priorities. Dads, as the shepherds, I mean, just think about how you can just transpose this. And God could, could look at the dads across America and say, woe unto you, shepherds. Amen. You've been selfish. You've done things for yourself, and you've not taken care of the, the, the primary charge I've given you, and that's your children in your home. I mean, this 
could literally be transposed to the home. Just briefly, Dad, it's your job to provide spiritual leadership for your family. That means your job to talk about God. You're supposed to initiate, let's go to church. You're supposed to initiate, hey, let's tithe and honor God. Dads are supposed to, re- to initiate uh, some kind of training for their children in the Word of God. They certainly are supposed to model Christ. And if Jesus wouldn't do it, why in the world are you? Well, I'm not. You're just a dad in charge of the life of another human being, it's all. And then the job you do for them, they'll probably do for their kids. And so you're kind of involved in a big, long chain of, you know, historical proportions. Not really a big deal. Sarcasm. You're supposed to model Christ. You're supposed to model priorities. You're supposed to show them how to love their mother. How to respect other people. How to honor authority. How to work hard. How to go to church. How to love the Lord. I mean, you are their shepherd. It's your job to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, not mine. I've got, (laughs) I have all that I want. (laughs) I'm on round two. I need to up my game. In the text, the children of Israel failed because their fathers failed. Their spiritual leadership, their leaders failed. So tonight, I just want to make direct application. You know, this can seem far away, but it's really easy for you and I to have wrong priorities and not make this what life's really all about. Looking to outside sources for security and the definition of success, and, and we can get off the mark here and listening too much to the world and not off the Bible and just picking on dads a little bit tonight in terms of application. This worked for all parents here. We're shepherds too of our own little flock. And if there's a woe to these shepherds for failing to do their job, there's probably a woe for us to failing to do ours. So let's do our job. Let me ask you to stand.